Well, I am glad to see you this morning. Uh, we are starting a brand new series today, and I am really excited that you did brave uh, the weather um, to be here. And we are recording this, so you can get this into the hands of your friends and family who did not brave the weather with us this morning. Um, so what we're going to be teaching, Cole and I, over the next uh, uh, several weeks um, as we move through the winter and into the spring, we're teaching something that we learned from a mentor. Now, this mentor passed away last year, uh, but what this mentor taught, among the many things he taught, um, he, uh, he pointed people uh, to a very close following relationship with Jesus, and that's exactly what we want to do as well. We want to do that as well. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be following Jesus through Mark's eyewitness biography. So we're going to get started now. Like everybody, I need food. Uh, obviously, I need much less than I actually do consume, but I need food, I need water, I need air, I need shelter. Um, I have lots of physical needs, so do you. We all have physical needs. But we also need things like love, and we need acceptance, and we need kindness, and we need compassion, and we need even companionship. We all need real relationships. Now, scientists have proven that we need these things. In fact, if we don't have those needs met in our life, we die. We don't thrive. We actually need those things. So I have many unmet needs, so do you, in your life. I have needs and you have needs. Now, this is so interesting. God doesn't. God does not have any unmet needs. So that is going to be the backdrop of what we teach today. So let that sink in very deeply. God has no unmet needs. That is so critical. Um, it is so vital. Uh, so I have needs, God does not. Um, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, many experts believe that Mark was recording Peter's firsthand account. Um, whether that's true or not, I happen to believe that's true. Um, but regardless, it is a firsthand account, an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And so let's go from the very beginning, and we're just going to cover a few verses today because we're going to dig very deeply into a very, very, very important concept as we try to understand God. And right from the beginning, both Mark and Peter believe 
this about Jesus, and here's what this is in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So right off the bat, they want you to understand. Mark has written it down. He wants you to know Jesus is the Messiah. He is what they called the Christ. He is the Son of God. And Mark continues. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. He said, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way. Now, the concept here that we don't get, but they get, uh, his original readers understood this. A messenger was always sent ahead of the king. So if a king was going to show up somewhere, a messenger went first. And so they're picking this up. That, that's something we just don't get without knowing the history. And so Mark is clearly saying that Jesus is a king. He's the Messiah. He's the king. And Jesus had a messenger, like all kings do, a messenger went before him. And it was predicted, as Mark is writing here, 700 years before it happened. That's when Isaiah wrote that down, and Mark is quoting from Isaiah. 700 years before this happened, and the person that was the messenger, Mark, is, is, Mark tells us and the other Gospels tell us, is a guy they called John the Baptizer. Okay? And so Mark goes on, speaking of this messenger. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, and here's what he shouts, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. And again, he's quoting Isaiah. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Mark is saying this is the long-awaited king. The long-awaited king. He's the Messiah, and this Messiah is a king. And Isaiah gave us this prediction years and years and years ago, and he showed up, this king, this Messiah, just like he was supposed to. And, I, and, and Mark is telling us that the name of this Messiah, the name of this king, is Jesus. So from the very first words that we have from Mark, he's letting his readers know something very important, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that he is the Christ, and he is the king. Mark continues. We're going to look at verse 9. One day, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him. That's why one of the reasons he's called John the Baptizer. John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus... Now, I'm going to pause here. The next couple of verses we're going to read, we're going to spend pretty much the rest of this morning on these verses. So we are going to take what Mark has given us and we're going to dig very deep into something that is so important about how you understand God, okay? So please, I'm going to move as fast as this old fat boy can. I'm going to move through this. So, so hang in there with me. I promise you it's not going to be a marathon morning, I promise. Uh, I had something I want to tell you, but I'm not. Yeah, I'm going to tell you. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I had the privilege of preaching on a Sunday night, Super Bowl Sunday. And in my great wisdom of a 25-year-old, 30, I don't know how old I was, I had a 25-point sermon. Yeah, I, I was an idiot. I'm an idiot. I, yeah, I, I, I was an idiot. So this is not one of those, I promise. 
we're going to move through this quickly. So here's this section that we're going to spend a lot of time on. So let me, let me read it. Verse 10. So remember, John the baptizer is baptizing Jesus, and here's what he says in verse 10. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Now today, we are used to God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, being described like a dove. We are used to that. I mean, we see logos about that. We see that part of church signs. We are used to that. But let me tell you, Mark's readers, they were not used to that. They, they were not used to that at all. Back then, that analogy, that metaphor for God as a dove, God's spirit as a dove, in the first century, that was only found in one single place. All right? Now, this is so important. It was found in the Aramaic translation of the Old Covenant. Now, if anyone brought their Bibles today, I saw some this morning, you have an English translation of the Bible. When you look at the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, you have an English translation of the original. The original was written in the Old Covenant in Hebrew, and you have an English translation. Back then, in the first century, even though the Jews were of the Hebrew nation, they spoke Aramaic. And so the Aramaic translation of the Old Covenant was very well known among the Jews because that was the language they grew up speaking. Okay? They also spoke Greek, but they knew Aramaic. They also they spoke Aramaic. That was there. Language. And so here we have the Aramaic translation, and Mark is making an amazing comparison that I'm going to venture to guess most of us in this room today did not know what I'm getting ready to tell you about this Aramaic translation. That's the only place that the first century readers had ever considered God being compared to a dove. Now, please remember, he's not saying that the Spirit was a dove. He's using a metaphor. He said he is like a dove. He descended like a dove. And so when Mark said that, the first century Jews who were reading this text, that struck a note. Because only in one other place has God in the Scripture for the Hebrews, has he been compared to a dove. And it happens to be at a very famous place. So they all recognize this. Now for us today, that's probably new information for you, that connection. But when they heard Mark describe this, their minds immediately went to where else God had been described his spirit as a dove. And it happens in the very beginning. It happens in the creation account, Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. Genesis 1, verse 2. And here's what the Aramaic 
the English translation of the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible says, the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. Like a dove. Now Mark is making this connection. So this is lost on us in 2024 in Arkansas. But this was not lost on them. God's Spirit is at creation. And God's Spirit is connected to what is happening at the baptism of Jesus. And Mark wants that comparison very clear. See, at creation, we see what we call the three persons of God. And those three persons of God, you probably have grown up hearing these. We have God the Father. Who else? God the Son and God the Spirit. Right, God the Holy Spirit. Now, I I want you to do me a favor for just a moment. I was talking to Jacob uh, earlier this morning, and I, I... I want you to take every metaphor, good meaning, I have done this as well, good meaning teachers have used metaphors to try to help us understand God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But I want you to take all of those metaphors. We've heard metaphors like, uh, it's like God, uh, it's like someone who, like me, I'm a father and I'm a brother. And I'm a son. I'm all three of those. I want you to take that metaphor. Good meaning people have used it. I've used it. I want you to take that metaphor. And I just want you to never think about it again. We've also used metaphors like this, uh, like water. That God is like water. So you what else? Water. Yeah. (laughs) You have ice. And you have, what else? Water. Yeah. (laughs) Water. Okay. Good meaning teachers have used that. I've used that, but I want you to take that metaphor and I want you to put it in the back of your life and never bring it up again. And any other metaphor, perhaps, because I want you to know there is not a metaphor that will ever do justice to describing God. We're getting ready to do our best to use language to help you understand God. But I'm not going to use a metaphor because I think every metaphor we've ever used falls so short to the magnificence and the glory of who God is. So we have God the Father, God the Spirit, and we have God's Word at creation through which He creates. So at creation, Mark is drawing this connection. At creation, we find descriptions of God the Father and God the Word, who's Jesus, through whom God creates everything. So God the Father, we find God the Word, and we find this Jesus, and we find God the Spirit at creation. And the very same God is present right here where I just read about the baptism of Jesus. 
We have the father who was the voice who said, this is my son. They didn't see him, they heard him. We have the father. Then we have Jesus who is the word. And we have the spirit who comes and hovers like a dove. Baptized that happened at creation. And Mark is making that connection, and it happened right here at the baptism of Jesus. Mark included this for a purpose. This is not an accident. Just as the original creation was a project of all three persons of God, so is this redemption of that creation, the rescue of that creation, the renewal of that creation. As Jesus comes up out of the water, we have the beginning process of redemption. And we find it right here with the arrival of this Messiah, this King, Jesus. Now, at the beginning of creation, this was a project of God in three persons. And now at this redemption, it's a project of God in three persons. Now, God knows that we will never be able to fully understand God. So he gives us some hints, a glimpse into his very nature. So when we say God in three persons, we're not talking about three different gods. All right? We're not talking about three different gods. And we're not talking about one God who appears sometimes as the Father, and sometimes He appears as the Son, and sometimes He appears as the Spirit. No, nope, we're not talking about that. We're talking about something that our limited physical minds, literally, we can't comprehend it. We're talking about one God who is existing in three separate but unified persons all the time. One God, three persons, who each know and love one another. So please, crack your neck, arch your back, stay with me. Don't let me lose you. This is important. One God who is not more fundamentally one than he is three. And he is not more fundamentally three than he is one. And I know, I know, this is mind-blowing. We can't comprehend this. It's like I'm a snail. I'm a snail, and I have a whole bunch of snail family here today. And we work, right? That's what it's like. We just can't comprehend this. It's mind-blowing. But Mark describes God very strategically and very specifically as three persons. And God, who is one, yet three, is interacting with himself. So when Jesus, God the Son, comes up out of the water, We find Mark describes the Father who embraces Jesus with words of love by saying, You're my son, whom I love, and with you 
I am well pleased. And at the same time, then we see the Spirit who embraces Jesus with authority, and he embraces Je- he, he's embracing this Jesus who is now in a physical body with authority. And he's embracing Jesus with the seal of authenticity. And as incredible as this sounds, this is something that has been happening in the interior life of God for all eternity. What Mark has to ship is God in a perfect relationship with himself. According to Scripture, we have God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And they glorify not themselves, they glorify the other. You can look in John chapter 17 and find that. Each person of the Trinity glorifies the other two, meaning there is no competition, there is no hierarchy. It just doesn't exist. Each person in the Trinity is busy glorifying the other members of the Trinity. God is in an epic drama. And he is creating this drama. He is making making this drama. He is together co-authoring this drama. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And these co-authors exalt one another. They exist as a family. They yield to one another. They surrender and submit to one another. So each divine author, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, has the other two as the center of that being. As the center. Each perfectly embraces the others. Now, God's interior life overflows with connection to the others. And I know this sounds all all really way up here to where it really, this stuff doesn't matter, but please hang in here with me because it matters so much. God's interior life overflows with connection to the others. And I know this sounds amazing. God is actually living, showing us what a perfect relationship looks like. And God knows. God knows that sounds exactly like what I'm looking for in my own life, in my own relationships. What God has in the Trinity is exactly what I need in my life. In fact, we were created to need that type of connection. Those relationships, a perfect relationship like that, has actually been hardwired into every single one of us. And this is the image of God. Do you remember back at creation, we were created in the image of God. This is the image of God. And it's created inside of you. Man, this is 
this is such a big deal. I know it doesn't sound like it. I know it sounds like I'm trying to take you to seminary right now, but believe me, this is a big big deal because we all know in our own lives, we crave a better relationship. If we were to to adore a person, that person, their beauty compels us to adore them. Uh, that person, because of that, we are consumed by them just because of who they are on the inside. When we find that person, we can't help but glorify them, right? We can't help it. When we find them, our desire is to serve that person unconditionally. That kind of relationship sounds amazing to us. We want that. That's exactly what you want in all of your relationships. That's what you want as a spouse. That's what you want as a a parent, as a sibling. It's what we even want at work. It's what we want. And when you think you've found this, this unconditional, this sincere, this real, this co-submissive, this absolute... No questions asked love. Nothing feels better. And here's what's devastating. Because we have never really, truly experienced that type of relationship. We were created for it, but we lost it. Which is why Mark, I believe, is going into such, uh, 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 going into such detail about God's interaction with himself. The relationship enjoyed eternally by the person of God is that perfect relationship. But for us, we've been broken by sin. We only experience relationships that say, I'll serve you as long as I get what I need from you. Yeah, I'll serve you if I get what I want. Or we say, I'll sacrifice for you as long as it doesn't cost me too much. As long as I have plenty left for me to do what I want to do. Okay, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll sacrifice for you. And at some point, those attitudes, those perspectives slip into every single really serving ever had. Even though we all know, we all know. That's not really serving. That's self-serving. That's not really bringing them into the center of my life because really there's no room for them in the center of my life because I'm taking up all the room. No, that's not really that. That's not you really loving and orbiting around that person. No, 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 no. That's you and me trying to figure out how to make them orbit around ourselves. To glorify others means we're going to somehow unconditionally serve them, not because we're getting anything out of it, but because of our love and our appreciation for who they truly are. And again, I know this sounds amazing. You need that, which is why. You want that. And like me, you need that. And you wished you had that. Here's the point. That is what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have enjoyed eternally 
They are wholly focused on the others. Serving them. Adoring them. Yielding to them. Perfectly glorifying. Perfectly giving. Perfectly loving one another. Which makes God infinitely and completely happy. And that's what makes you happy. Think about it. If you find somebody you adore, if you find somebody that you would just absolutely do anything for, if you would find someone that you would sacrifice anything for, and then you discover that they feel the exact same way about you, that feels amazing. It feels good. It feels right. And that perfect relationship is what God has been enjoying with the Trinity himself for all eternity. For all eternity. See, God has no needs. They are perfectly met within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit pouring love and adoration and joy into the other members of the Trinity, each one serving the other members of the Trinity, infinitely seeking the other's glory, which makes God infinitely happy. And of this, everything we experience is an epic novel that is being written and it is being orchestrated by these co-authors, God. This drama that we live in is created by and lived out by this three-person, singly divine life. And it's also supposed to be played out in each one of our relationships as well, because we have been created in the image of God. So, these completely unified one co-authors are the opposite of a self-centered life. See, a self-centered life doesn't budge. It doesn't move. A self-centered life wants everyone else, so let's call it me. My self-centered life wants everyone else around me that I know that I'm in relationship with to orbit around me. In fact, not just every person, but I also want God to orbit around my life. It says, I want you to orbit around me. So when I'm self-centered, everything I do is really about me. Why? Because I'm in the center. Self-centeredness makes everything somehow about a way for me to get what I want. What I want in this self-centered life, self-centered life is important than what you want. And this self-centered life, this side of the Garden of Eden, it is all we know. 
That's all we know. Because in the garden, we lost that perfect relationship that we were created by God to enjoy. Think about it. With everybody saying, no, no, you orbit around me. No, 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 you orbit around me. With everyone saying that, think about it. Nothing happens. The drama stops. The story goes nowhere. Everyone becomes angry. They become impossible. And listen, this happens in marriages. It happens in the home with family. It happens with siblings. It happens at school. It happens at work. It happens in every single relationship we have. But the Trinity is the complete opposite of self-centeredness. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each completely, totally exhibiting Self-giving love. In other words, each member of the Trinity orbits around the others. No person in the Trinity insists that the others revolve around him. Rather, they voluntarily orbit around the others. So here we are to this question. Why? Does this matter? Why have we spent so much time? It matters describing the interaction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It matters because this eternal, always existing reality for God has always and always will be lived out by our triune God. And since you and I are created in his image, that means that in every relationship God creates around your life, we should try to better reflect that perfect love as well. Think about this with me. Why would a triune God create this world? Why? It can't be so that he can be worshipped. you know why? Because God has no need to be worshipped. He's in a perfect relationship with himself, glorifying the other members of the Trinity. That's not it. He doesn't need to be worshipped. So that's not why. It can't be that. It can't be so that he'll experience joy. That can't be it. You know why? Because he experiences perfect joy right now in the presence of the Trinity in the relationship of the Trinity. He already has that, and it's perfect, and it always has been perfect, and there's absolutely nothing missing. So that can't be why he created this world, which leaves us maybe with only one other answer. He must have created us in his image, not so that he would get joy from it, but so that he could give joy. He must have invited us into his drama, his epic story that he is co-authoring for that purpose. And if we begin to step into that story, if we begin to step into his story and reflect his image, we will experience joy like no other. In fact, we will experience joy more like God experiences joy.
from the beginning, that is the life that has been written, co-authored by God himself for you and for me. You see, we aren't created to just believe in some kind of spiritual force in some kind of general way. We aren't created to make ourselves the center of this story of life that we're living. We're created to reflect God. We're created to step outside of ourselves and to orbit around God. And it's a life that we see perfectly demonstrated between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I promise you, that's where you will begin to find joy. That is what this epic story is all about. Now, although that's how the story began in the Garden of Eden, almost as soon as it begins, the story takes a turn, doesn't it? Because we know chapter 3 is coming. <laughs> we know how this story begins also with Jesus. And again, at the, baptize, the, the baptism of, of Jesus. But for his story, it also takes a dramatic turn to the baptism where we see this interaction of God with himself. Baptism, the first step written into this redemption story, Jesus finds himself in a harsh wilderness. Here's how Mark pens it in verse 12. The Spirit then, so this is right after the baptism, the Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days, and he was out among the wild animals. Now, while God's epic story begins with love and is a story of love, we're going to experience this story as a battle. That's how we're going to experience it. And that's what Jesus experiences here. And we can expect that for our own lives as well. Now, Mark keeps comparing what happened around creation to what happened in front of his eyes, in front of Peter's eyes, in front of the many of the disciples' eyes in the life of Jesus. So here's that comparison very quickly. At creation, the Spirit moves over the face of the waters. So we're all the way back at Genesis 1. The Spirit moves over the face of the waters. God speaks the Word into being. Humanity is created and history is launched. And it is perfection. But the very next thing that happens at creation, we find that Satan tempts Eve and the garden is then turned into a wilderness. Now let's fast forward to the baptism of Jesus. God begins repairing what is broken because now at the baptism of Jesus, we have the recreation. But this time things are a little different because this time we have eyewitnesses and they write down their accounts. The Spirit of God hovers over Jesus in the water. God speaks there too. A new humanity is to be recreated through Jesus and history is going to be altered just like we have a creation. But once again, just like the last time, almost immediately, this established pattern continues because now we have Satan who tempts Jesus in the wilderness, and it's the very wilderness that was created, written, authored by Adam and Eve. 
And Jesus faces that temptation. The other gospel biographers, uh, they show us that this temptation of Jesus, this it, it's very personal. It is not some random temptation of go eat some Doritos. It, it, uh, of course, that's pretty personal for me, but it's, 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 a very, it's a very personal temptation. We find that in the other biographers. The evil one tempts Jesus to step out of orbit because Jesus has been orbiting around God the Father and God the Spirit, right? Just like they have been orbiting around, okay? And the evil one tempts him to step out of that orbit. He tempts him to, to no longer have God the Father and God the Spirit at the center of his life. Jesus is tempted by Satan. Don't do it, Satan saying, don't, don't do it the way of God the Spirit. Don't do it how they have written it. No, 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 no. Jesus, do it your own way. And Satan is tempting Jesus away from God the Father and God the Son and I mean God the Spirit. And Satan is tempting us away from God as well. He tempts us to get into the story of the evil one. That's what he wants. And do you know how he gets us into his story? By tempting us to write our own story. That's how he does it. By tempting us to leave the co-authors of the triune God and to begin to write our own story the way we want it to go, the, 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 the way we want it to end, the way we want it to happen, he tempts us to write our own story. And it's precisely what he did with Adam, and Adam failed. And right on time, once again, the evil one tries now to do it with Jesus in the wilderness. You see, God told Adam and Eve, eat it, that fruit, eat it, and you will die. So, so don't eat it, God said. And our response to God, when we hear God tell us something, and maybe that was their response then, it's our response now, we think, well, God, why does that matter so much? Well, here's why. Because if we only obey God when we can understand how it will benefit us, then we are the center of our lives. And as a result, we're expecting God to rotate around us. And let me say this another way. If we will only obey God if we can understand why we should, then we're asking God to rotate around us. God, I'll do it. If I make it make sense to me, God, I'll do it if I can understand how it will benefit me. Oh, I'll do it then. But God, if you don't explain it right, if you don't ask it right, if you don't lay it out there right, hmm, I'm not going to do it. And as a result, we're expecting God to orbit around us. And God is saying, no, 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 no. That's not how this relationship works, this perfect relationship. No, 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 no. You obey me because you love me. Don't eat from the tree. Do what I ask just because I ask. 
Do it just so you can be in a relationship with me. Trust me on this. Obey me about the tree and you will live. And you know how the story goes. They didn't obey. Adam and Eve failed that test. And all of human beings, humankind, have been failing that test every since that moment. And Jesus faced the same test. He had the same opportunity. And Matthew tells us, he said, the evil one tempts Jesus to step out of the orbit and to do it his own way. You don't have to do it the way God the Father wants. You don't have to do it the way God the Spirit. You do it your own way. And you know what? The temptation for Jesus was ministered to what we have recorded right there. Jesus was tempted his entire ministry all the time. Through that three years, the evil one was tempting Jesus. Jesus was assaulted by the evil one, attacked over and over and over while he was on this earthly life, right up to the climax of this story, which we find in another garden. This time it wasn't the Garden of Eden. This time it was the Garden of Gethsemane. And even this experience was all written by the co-authors. This was a garden where Jesus was going to make right what went wrong in the Garden of Eden. You see, God asked Adam and Eve to do one thing. He said, Adam, Eve, obey me about the tree, and if you do, you will live. And they failed. But in this new garden, God said to Jesus, Son, obey me about the tree. Only this time the tree was a cross. Son, obey me about the tree, and you will die. And Jesus did. And it was God's plan. All written, all co-authored by God before time began. A plan where he would go before you into a very real battle and try to draw you back into his story, into God's story with all the other co-authors, us not being an author. Where we enter into his story the co-authors of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and He has written you into His story, and He has come to offer you His joy. So maybe, just maybe, you're in the deepest part of this battle in your own life. When everything inside of you wants to make everyone around you orbit around you. But maybe, maybe instead, this morning, maybe you can just simply begin to trust in Him. Just maybe. And maybe instead of asking God or others to orbit around you, you can begin the process of stepping into orbit around God. And you can glorify God and God alone. Maybe, 
just maybe, think with me. If you refuse to make yourself the center of your story, then you might also hear in the deepest part of your soul the words that Jesus heard. This is my beloved child whom I love and I am well pleased. And my friends, this is just week one. We have so much to learn from the biography of Mark. Oh, I hope you'll be back next week. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the eyewitnesses. Thank you for what they wrote, what your spirit led them to write. Thank you. I pray that we will be consumed with you. Oh, I pray, God, that we will be consumed and orbiting our lives around your life. That we might not try to rewrite the story, that we might not try to write our own story based upon what we want and how we want it to go, but that we will simply say, I trust you, God, just because you are you. And I will glorify you. And I will let my life willingly submit to you and orbit around you. Because after all, God, you've created me in your perfect image. And may we, through the course of this winter and through the course of this spring, God, we ask you right now to give us a glimpse, a taste of you in a perfect relationship, one day perfect for us. God, we offer this entire series to you and we ask that you speak to our lives over the next many weeks. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.